The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fourth chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. A coach does not always seem like a friend. Although I know that many players would like to imagine they are friends with their coach, their coach has to do certain things along the way to be a member of a team, the coach has to do certain things along the way that do not seem very friendly. So of course there is just the basic discipline of showing up to practice. Showing up and putting in the time, running the drills, practicing the plays, listening to the instructions, memorizing the playbook, all of those ordinary things of discipline, the hard work, the commitment, showing that you're actually a part of the team, listening to the one who is giving you the orders. All of that is ordinary discipline that a coach has to give, but then, of course, there are times when he has to step it up a notch, when he has to put his players to the test. There are moments when he pushes harder, when they've been running and running and running, those players have been running, and he says, one more lap, and then one more lap still. And they think they can't do another one, and he says, go harder, go again. You've run the play a hundred times before, and he says, run it again, now. Do it again, this time better. Push harder, more push-ups. Go until you can't go anymore, and then when you think you can't go anymore, I'm going to tell you to go further. It is at those moments that a coach does not seem like a friend to his players. It is those moments that a player might be tempted to quit. I don't have time for this. I don't need this. He thinks that he's in charge. He's just doing this to push me around. He's just doing this to break me. I don't need to do an extra drill. I don't need to do an extra lap. I don't need to do more push-ups. The coach doesn't seem like a friend, and it is at that moment that the players might be tempted to throw in the towel and quit the team. And it is at that moment precisely that if there was a recruiter from another team, he would show up and entice the players then. Not in the moment when they're in the locker room cheering for a victory. That's not when a recruiter would show up to try to pull those players away to another team. Of course, that wouldn't work. 
Not when they've suffered a hard loss and the coach is consoling them, saying we're going to get them next time. Not then would a recruiter from another team show up. Not when they're running the ordinary drills, when things are working the way that they should work, when things seem well greased and the machine is operating properly. Not then would a recruiter from another team show up. But it is at this moment when the players are lying face down on the ground, out of energy, and the coach is hollering at them to give another lap, that is when the recruiter would show up and say, I've got an offer for you. You don't need this nonsense. You're weak, and he's just trying to make you weaker. He's trying to break you down. He's trying to tear you down. This isn't doing you any good. Wouldn't it be better to play on a team where the coach doesn't holler at you? Wouldn't it be better to play on a team where you don't have to work harder than you need to? Wouldn't it be better to play on a team where the coach is your friend, where he sees your limitations and he respects them and he doesn't ask you to do more than you think you can do? Wouldn't that be better, this recruiter might say? He waits for that moment when the players are spent, when they've got nothing left to give, when they are weak. If he was clever, that's what he would wait for. When they hate their coach, when they think of their coach, this guy is my enemy and not my friend, that's when the recruiter would show up and he'd say, Come on, you don't need this. Join my team instead. That's what a clever recruiter would do. He would know the difference between strength and weakness, and he would wait. He would wait for that moment of weakness, and that is exactly how the devil operates. He does not try to entice us or lure us away from our Savior when we are strong. When things are going well, when things are running smoothly, when we feel good and happy and joyous and blessed. Why bother trying to tempt us then? Why bother trying to entice us away then? Things are going so well. He knows that there's certainly a day coming when things are not going to go well. And in fact, he knows there's a day coming when things are not going to go well because our Savior has done it to us. Because our coach has pushed us harder and harder still, because our coach is the one who has brought us into weakness, because our Savior is the one who has disciplined us, who has laid us low. He waits for that moment. That's what the devil waits for. And you can see it today in our gospel lesson. The devil did not show up trying to entice Jesus at the moment of his baptism. That's the story that comes just before this story today of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. The devil did not show up at the moment of Jesus' baptism when the heavens were open and the voice came from above, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove, and there were flocks and flocks of people around coming to be baptized, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins, and everything was going great in the kingdom of God for Jesus, the anointed one. The devil did not show up then. What would have been the point? This was a moment when all was going well, and so the devil waited. He waited until Jesus was sent out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Did you notice who sent him into the wilderness? It was God himself. It was the Spirit who drove him into a desert place, lonely and hungry, Hungry, you see, because this wasn't just any ordinary desert place. This was a desert place where Jesus had been given instructions by his Father not to eat. And so Jesus fasted. 
But notice that the devil does not show up at the beginning of those 40 days, and he doesn't show up 20 days in. He waits. And he waits, and he waits. As far as the devil's concerned, he's got lots of time, and he is very patient, and so he waits until Jesus is at what would be his lowest. Can you imagine how you would feel if you had not eaten for 40 days? Can you imagine how you would feel if you had not eaten for 40 days and you had not seen another soul for 40 days? And can you imagine how you would feel if you'd not eaten and not seen another soul and it was God himself who said, I want you to do this. I want you to suffer in this way. I want you to experience this kind of misery, this kind of lack. I want you to experience this kind of need. How would you feel if you were in that position? The devil asked that very same question, and so that is precisely when the devil shows up. He waits and he waits and he waits until Jesus is good and hungry, until Jesus is good and lonely, until all of the pieces of the puzzle come together, and it is this perfect storm of weakness, Weakness and loneliness and aching and wasting away of the body and wondering whether all of this could possibly be worth it. That's certainly what we would wonder, wouldn't we? Don't we wonder that every time God gives us instructions to do something that we find dissatisfying or something that grates against our flesh or something that takes away things that we love or makes us go without things that we want? Don't we say, can this possibly be worth it? Can it be true that God would ask that of me? As your hunger grows for the things of this life, as you go without them, as God takes them away from you, do you find yourself wondering whether it could possibly be worth it? Whether this is really what God means by blessedness? Is this really what God means when he says that you're his beloved child? Shouldn't that mean happiness and joy and bliss and not? Being deprived and wanting and lacking the things that you think you need? The devil waits until that moment when there is this perfect storm. All the pieces of the puzzle come together, and then he shows up subtle and crafty. You heard it from Genesis. The craftiest of all creatures that serpent was. Subtle and crafty. He doesn't come in with guns blazing. He doesn't come in loud and obnoxious, but he comes in sly and with promises. He comes in telling you exactly what you want to hear in your moment of weakness. If you are the Son of God, why not just command these stones to become bread? Why not just take what you need? Quite the father you have, who would tell you to fast and suffer in this way. Quite the father you have. He must be some sort of a sadist. Maybe you misunderstood what he meant. Can that possibly be true, that God would say that to you? Doesn't God want you to be happy? and content? Doesn't he want you to be full of joy? Do you call this a blessing? Do you call this joy to be here in the wilderness? What is the love of a father for a son in this? Doesn't the father give good things to his own child? The devil asks. He's always in the habit of just asking questions to begin with. You heard that in Genesis. Did God really say? Look, I'm just, I'm just asking a question here. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat for the fruit of that tree? But you're not weak, Jesus. You don't have to suffer like this. You can just say no. 
In fact, Jesus, you've got the words of power. Your words are the words that created everything out of nothing. Let there be light. That was you, Jesus. Why not just say that this stone would become a loaf of bread and then all would be well? You don't have to wait for your father to give you anything. You can just take it for yourself. You don't need to sit around while he hands you stones that cannot satisfy your hunger. Maybe he wants you, in fact. Maybe God wants you to kind of rebel a little bit, to push back and say, this is not okay. This is not what I want. You should give me what I want instead. Listen, Jesus, you've suffered enough. You should just follow your heart, follow your gut, go with your instincts here, and that instinct to satisfy your belly, that's a good instinct. Everyone would tell you that. That's how the devil works. Subtle and crafty, waiting for your moment of weakness, putting together this perfect storm of suggestion. He's not a bumbling fool. He's not ignorant. He knows what it takes to recruit players from the other team, and he watches and he waits, and he doesn't make silly mistakes. He doesn't offer you things that you don't want. He offers you just the things that you do want. He knows what he's up against. The devil does. He knows who his enemy is. He knows that God is his enemy. And so he knows that he needs to find our weaknesses and exploit them. And this is how he goes to work on us. He waits not only until you feel weak, but he waits specifically for that moment when God is the one who has weakened you. I hope you know that that's not only a real possibility for the Christian life, but it is a necessity that God would weaken you that he would lay you low, that he would take any pride that you have, any self-exaltation, any sense of self-righteousness, that he would take that away from you, that he would take all of the things that you love too much, the things that you love more than you love him, he has to take them away from you. He has to be the one who does that to you because no one else will. No one else knows what danger there is to you in loving things of this world too much, in holding on to the things of this life too sternly. No one else knows how much your pride is dangerous to you, how your self-righteousness keeps you from him. And so it is God himself who takes you to a place that you do not want to go, to a desert place, a time of fasting, a time of testing. God is the one who does it to you. And the devil knows that that is coming in your life. And it comes again and again. And so he waits. And he comes with a suggestion precisely tuned to bring all of those things into focus, to make you wonder whether God could possibly mean it, whether his word is true. The devil is crafty and subtle, and he does not make silly mistakes. But he is a fool in thinking that he can capture Jesus. We can read that story and know that he never had a chance. He never had a chance against the Son of God, but maybe he figured he should just give it a try. After all, if he could entice the Son of God to sin, then he wouldn't have to worry about any of the rest of us. He could stop our salvation in its tracks. He could prevent Jesus from going to the cross and dying. He could have Jesus on his side, and then all things would belong to him. He was a fool to think that he could capture Jesus, but note this also. He is a fool to think that he can steal your hearts. To be a Christian is to know that precisely when you are weak, when you have nothing left, 
when the things that you want are gone, when the things that you think you need are taken from you, precisely then is when God is strong. It is not when you feel okay, when you feel like everything's going well, when you have every reason in the world to be joyous, when you think that you have every blessing, but it is precisely when you are at a loss, at your wit's end, when you have finally nothing left to do except to fall on the mercy of God, that is when he is strong. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What the devil doesn't reckon with is that Jesus has come to give you a new heart, a heart that will trust in him in spite of what the devil says, in spite of what your eyes can see, in spite of what you feel in your flesh. That's the goal of the Christian life, is to trust in God in spite of anything. To believe that even though God casts you into the desert place and makes you hunger and thirst, nonetheless, he is a loving Heavenly Father who will give you every good thing. And that he has promised rescue and redemption for you. The proof is in the Son of God, Jesus, who withstood the temptation of the devil at that time, in those 40 days, all the way to the cross, suffering forsakenness from his Father and crying out on your behalf, Father, forgive them. The proof is there. That you can withstand the temptations of the devil not because you are strong, but because God is strong. You can withstand the temptations of the devil not because you are so able or so fit, but because Christ has wrestled with the devil on your behalf and he is ready to fight for you now. The key is this, that when you are weak, you don't look at yourself. You don't look at your own weakness. You don't wonder whether you can make it. You don't wonder whether God loves you. You look to the cross, and you see in the cross what weakness amounts to. Salvation and forgiveness of sins and resurrection. After all, weakness in Christ ends in strength and glory. There is nothing more glorious, nothing more triumphant than Jesus coming out of the grave That moment when maybe, perhaps, the devil thought that he had won the victory, the Son of God was dead. But then Jesus rose from the dead, and now there is no longer any question. There's no longer any question about what God can do, and there's no longer any question about what God will do for you. The devil is after you. He's waiting and lurking, prowling like a roaring lion, trying to devour you, but he has not reckoned with this fact. Know this fact for certain, and hold on to it throughout the course of your life, that precisely when you are weak, precisely when you have nothing left, that is when your Savior is strong for you. The devil can't bear it. You saw how our lesson ended today. The devil had to leave. He just had to go away. He can't bear it to be in the presence of God's faithfulness, and he can't bear it to be in the presence of one who trusts in him. And so the devil must flee. There is no trick. There is no secret There's no magic incantation. There's no special words to say to make the devil flee. Instead, it is simply this. Believe that your Savior has died for you. If Jesus has overcome death, if he's overcome hell, then there is nothing the devil can throw at you that can stop you. Nothing the devil can throw at you that can hurt you. Do not believe his lies. Instead, listen to the gracious voice of your Savior who gave everything he had, absolutely everything he had, in order to bless you for all eternity. To God alone be all glory, now and forever. Amen.